0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
2: We often imagine if we're going to create some grand goal, oh, well, you know, I, I don't know how I'd do that, so I won't go there. But the actually really empowering thing is if you have a long enough term goal, you don't have to know how you're going to do it. It would be ridiculous to plan a 10-year strategy because so many things can change between here and there.
0: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, business educator Dory Clark talks about how to think strategically about your own
2: career. If you were literally to continue saying yes to everything, you would never be able to accomplish what you want.
1: There is no place that brings me more joy than my home, and I always try to surround myself with furniture and textiles and art that all have meaning and purpose. I've tried to decorate my home to maximize style and comfort for everyone in my family, both inside and out. That's why I love Joybird. With summer now winding down, Joybird has all the modern outdoor furniture and accessories to make the most of every patio hang. Joybird offers modern, customizable furniture for every space available in 18,000 customization options. There is truly something beautiful for everyone. Joybird is also committed to creating quality furniture and a more sustainable future. Every piece is made with incredible care, using responsibly sourced materials free of harmful chemicals. And fear not, you can even order a free fabrics watch kit to feel fabrics before you buy anything. Joybird firmly stands by its quality and craftsmanship. So if it's not everything you hoped for, you can simply send it back. Create a space that brings you joy with Joybird. Visit joybird.com forward slash matters and get 30% off your purchase. That's 30% off at joybird.com forward slash matters. You may have your dream job, but does your job let you dream? Is keeping up with its day-to-day demands distracting you from actually doing what you love? This is the problem addressed in Dory Clark's new book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory Clark is an executive education professor at Duke University School of Business. The New York Times described her as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She started as a journalist, so she's no stranger herself to self reinvention. Dory Clark, welcome to Design Matters. Debbie, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Dory. Dory, is it true that during the pandemic you started taking weekly ping pong lessons?
2: I most definitely did. Yes. (laughs) I, I was taking these long, these incredibly long, like four hour walks around Manhattan because all of my friends had fled the city and all the gyms were closed. And I was just wandering around in a new neighborhood one day. And I came across this oasis. And it was a two story ping pong studio. And they had signs that they were open 24 hours and they had lessons. And I, I thought, okay, it's God speaking to me. I must do this. <laughs> Did you get any good? I, I'm actually decent right now. I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not ready to be a world champion. They actually do employ literal Olympic champions as coaches. But uh, I, would, I would say I have, uh, I have transcended basement player level status. Nice. I'd like to see that.
1: I understand that you grew up in a self-described little golf resort called Pinehurst, North Carolina, population 3000. So did you grow up playing golf? Are you you a sort of natural athlete that only comes out
2: when um, playing? No, I really hated my hometown. I thought it was kind of boring and, and stultifying. And so my adolescent rebellion was refusing to play golf.
1: Is it true that when you were a little girl, you wanted to be a spy?
2: Yeah, you've, you've, you've been digging. It's, it's all true. I, I, I was really into James Bond when I was growing up, which was saying something because that was the Roger Moore years. (laughs) But I I just thought it was so sophisticated and so wonderful. So uh, I did, uh, I did want to be a spy. And in fact, you know, my, my adult catharsis version of that is writing a uh, lesbian spy musical. So that's, that's one of my COVID projects as well as the ping pong. So Fun Home sort of meets Daniel Craig's James Bond. (laughs) Something like that, absolutely.
1: You mentioned as you were growing up, you felt incredibly frustrated. Um, I know that you felt somewhat um, curtailed by the opportunities around you. And at some point, you wanted to be a lawyer, then you considered becoming a gay activist. But I also understand you were in a band, and I believe it was called the Unlimited Powers. So let's talk about your early days as a rock and roller. What instrument did you play? Where did you play? Give us all the details.
2: Yes, the Unlimited Powers was a very short-lived band. Uh, it was in, the title was inspired by, uh, I guess, appropriately, by Anthony Robbins's book, Unlimited Power. So I was a little bit of a self-development geek even as a teenager, and uh, I played the guitar kind of badly. I, I managed to take a couple of years of lessons as a teenager, um, mostly so that I could sound decently impressive strumming uh, the Indigo Girls um, by, you know, a proverbial fire. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we just, uh, we cut our singles by singing into uh, cassette recorders. And that was about it. <laughs> oh, I'm going to spare
1: our listeners um, are doing our own rendition of an Indigo Girls duet. But I think we have to set up a date to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Did you become a Tony Robbins fan or go to any of his seminars or?
2: So the reason that we named the band that is that the the girl who was in it with me, her mother, actually, I was over at her house, my friend Rosalind, and I was over at her house and her mom was reading Tony Robbins, as I guess most <laughs> most people were back in that moment in time. And I saw it lying around the house, and I picked it up, and I was flipping through it. And she, the mother, was just obviously very excited by this development, because I think Rosalind was not a wit interested. And she, she said, oh! Do you like that book? And I, I was like, I, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) You know what is it? And so she explained to me uh, the basic outline of what it was. And she said, if you read this when you're 13, you will be invincible. (laughs) And I thought that was actually a a pretty good sales pitch. So she's like, do you want to take it home and borrow it? I was like, all right. So yes, that got me on the Anthony Robbins bandwagon. Well, it's quite. I don't know if it's a coincidence
1: then, but at 14, so one year later, you went to the Mary Baldwin College Program for the exceptionally gifted. So you went to college at 14, one year after reading Anthony Robbins' Unlimited Power. I think he needs to know that.
2: I think That's we needs right. to know that. It was all that. the neurolinguistic programming. Let's, let's right. give credit where credit is due.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you attended Mary Baldwin for two years. Then you transferred to Smith College, where you graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Where you majored in philosophy. I love that. You majored in philosophy. Two years later, at a mere 20 years old, you received a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School. So you
2: had a master's degree at 20. I did. I did. In theology. I'm not sure how far that gets you, but yes, I did. (laughs) So why theology? I was interested in Div School for a couple of reasons. Oh, I the love fr- that there's a, there's a, like, a little acronym, not, not an acronym, but a nickname, Div School. <laughs> yes. So the, f- the first reason was that as I was studying philosophy, what I was really interested in was understanding life, was, was understanding uh, what motivates people and what drives them. And interestingly, if we really want to geek out here, at Mary Baldwin, they taught a form of philosophy that it turns out is very uncommon in American academia, uh, which was continental philosophy. It's just a different approach to the discipline. What is continental philosophy? Continental philosophy is largely focused on, of, uh, as the name implies, European philosophers, but it's focused on. You could see these sort of broader issues of metaphysics of what is life, what's life about, what you know, what are what are we doing here, and I got to Smith, and it, it turned out I did not know this, and I did not know enough to even be asking the question they didn 't teach philosophy that way. they taught philosophy in a really different way that is much more prevalent in American academia, which is known as as anglo American or the analytic tradition in philosophy, and that is much less concerned with European philosophers, much more concerned with uh, i will say in my you know deliberately loaded way. Trying to turn philosophy into a science. And so they're focused on logic, they're focused on math, they're focused on almost neurobiology, like the neurobiology of experience. And I just was like, Oh, my God, is this what I signed up for? This isn't what I was wanting to do. And so I kind of muddled through it to finish my major. But I felt a little dissatisfied. I felt like I was sort of robbed. And so I switched over into religion and theology because I thought, okay, this is a little bit more where my interests lie. So I ended up going into uh, theology as a result of that. That was one reason. The other reason was uh, actually because of activist reasons i was very interested in understanding the psychology of the religious right and wanted to uh, <laughs> wanted to stop the christian coalition which at the time was uh, agitating very strongly against gay rights and other things that are important to me and so i wanted to have a better sense of the theological underpinnings of where they were coming from so that i could be more effective at that point in your life, you also assumed that your career
1: was going to be in academia, but you ended up getting turned down by every doctoral program you applied to. And what I really didn't understand was how do you get turned down for doctoral programs after graduating from Harvard at 20? <laughs>
2: Well, I, I appreciate your indignation on, on my behalf, Debbie. Thank you. I wish you were on the admissions committee. <laughs> but um, what actually did me in, I, I, I kind of have a sense of it. I didn't really understand that when you were an undergrad, being a Renaissance person is like the best thing ever. Like, that's if you're applying to undergrad, that's what they're looking for. They want diverse interests. When you are applying to a doctoral program, that is actually the last thing they want. They do not want diverse interests. They want one person who will do one extraordinarily narrow thing. And I was not telegraphing that. And I think they, I think they saw through me and realized, oh, this, this person might be a liability. And where I really knew I was in trouble, you have to take the, the GREs. And I did well in the GREs. I did, I did quite well. But I was interested in switching over from religion into English literature. I wanted to do the intersection of religion and literature, uh, which was probably not a popular choice. And so I had to take the English subject GRE, and I did not do well on that. And I, and I knew, I, you know, I tried to study for it, but in the middle of the test, I'm like, oh, God, this isn't going well. When I see the question translate this from this passage of Beowulf from the old English. (laughs) I thought, oh, oh, yeah, that's not my area of expertise now, is it? Wow. Well, I
1: I do know from Roxanne, who has a PhD, that you do need to be fluent in I think two other languages when you get a PhD in some sort of
2: English of of sorts, but I didn't know you yeah. needed
1: one before.
2: Oh my god, <laughs> it's true. And I and I even had taken a course and passed an exam in le français théologique, but unfortunately, theological French not so helpful with the whole Beowulf situation. And you don't think there was a niche there, okay?
1: <laughs> how did you, Dory? How did you manage this? The disappointment at that time when I was thinking about going to get a master's, I applied to one school, I applied to the, the Columbia School of Journalism, I didn't get in. And I was just inconsolable. You applied to several doctoral programs got rejected by all how did you how did you manage
2: that? Mostly I panicked, because I didn't have another plan. I was 100% sure it had literally never occurred to me that I would not get into any of them. I had uh, steeled myself to the fact that I probably wouldn't get into all of them. But to get into none was literally a possibility that I had not considered. And so I just thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And so I had to scramble to try to figure things out. So I set up an internship for myself uh, working at the state house in Massachusetts. And there had been a politician whose campaign I had volunteered on. And I set it up to be an unpaid intern in his basement office in the uh, in the Massachusetts State House for a semester, which kind of bought me some time and bought me a little experience on my resume that I figured I could leverage into something afterwards. During that time, you decided to try a career as a print journalist,
1: and you got a job as a political reporter at the Boston Phoenix and. Despite winning two awards from the New England Press Association, you were laid off with four days severance on September 10th, 2001, which made it nearly impossible to to get a job. And I I thought that the layoff story was an interesting one to share with, with our listeners.
2: The interesting thing for me is nowadays, if you say I was a reporter and I was laid off, people are like, well, duh. <laughs> what did you expect? <laughs> but the truth was, the year 2000 was literally the most lucrative year in history for print journalism. And we we forget that sometimes. History can change so fast. But the Boston Phoenix was... Uh, an alternative news weekly it was part of the genre like the village voice you know it was like a cool kid paper and i just i had loved it so much i had loved it for years and to be able to write there was just so exciting for me it was it was like i was in the action i was in this place that i really admired and uh unfortunately it was uh it was a free paper which was largely subsidized by its classified ads Let's be honest; it's porn ads, <laughs> but uh, but nonetheless, it supported some great journalism. But the it, those were the papers that were the first victims of Craigslist, and so I was laid off in two thousand one. And at that time, it was just such a such a shock that you would be laid off from a journalism job. I absolutely didn't predict it; I didn't see it coming. I you know had an hour to get my desk packed up and out the door, and I was. Unbowed. I was very upset, but I, I thought, okay, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find another job. What I really wanted was a job at the Globe, uh, which the Boston Globe, which was, you know, the sort of prestigious daily, regional daily in that area. And I thought, okay, the next morning, I'll start pounding the pavement. And of course, the, the very the next, next morning. morning was not the time to be looking for a job.
1: You ended up freelancing for the Boston Globe, and I thought it was interesting, especially given the topic of your of your most recent book. the The folks there had a very different response to your work, whereas your previous editor at the Phoenix would tear your work apart. The Globe often published your articles as is, with very little editing. How did you make sense of this, and what has that taught you over the years?
2: It was... Enormously satisfying for me. One of the things that I, I do talk about actually a lot in my work these days is so often we, I say, you know, a collective we, just professionals, people in general, tends to give I think far too much credence to the gatekeepers around us, to the people who are by luck or by title or, or what have you in a position to be able to say well this is good or this isn't good or you get in or you know you don't get in and it was very demoralizing to me when i was working at the phoenix because i had an editor who just i really felt like i couldn't do anything right i mean i would get this sea of red ink and you know and i try to understand what she wanted and she just gets so frustrated She'd just be like well just make it better. I'm like that's really not helpful here. <laughs> and, you know, so it just felt like the Sisyphean task of trying to intuit what she wanted and it was just so gratifying for me when I sent my first piece into the globe which was considered, you know, the more prestigious paper. They didn't change anything and it was kind of a, a you know, a lightning bulb moment for me because I think What I got out of it was just really understanding one person's opinion should not matter. I mean, fine, don't be an idiot. Listen to a hundred people's opinion, but one person's opinion could be wrong. And we're doing ourselves a disservice to give too much credence to that view, even if that person is in power.
1: I want to get back to that. It's a really juicy topic, Um, but continuing on with your origin story, so freelance writing really wasn't enough to support yourself. And so you pivoted again and made your first big professional reinvention and turned to political campaigning. And I think this is a different experience than what you were referring to about working in the basement for free. Here, you started working with Robert Reich, the former US labor secretary, who had decided to run for governor of Massachusetts. Given your sort of Bouncing around, shall we say, at the time. What made him decide
2: you could be an effective press secretary? I think it was largely desperation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Love the answer. (laughs) You know, there's nothing like a low bar, Debbie. (laughs) Um, Bob had entered the governor's race late, and it was a crowded field in the Democratic primary. He was the fifth candidate who was running. And so the honest truth is that the other candidates who had been in the race longer had snapped up all of the usual suspects who were political campaign staff. And Bob was scrambling to try to assemble a team. And unlike some of the other people who were running, you know, there was the Senate president and, you know, people who had pre-existing staffs and pre-existing relationships they could tap, Bob hadn't been back, you know, that long from, uh, you know, from D.C. And then he was in this academic career. So he didn't have his people, quote unquote. So he turned to a political consultant that he had hired named Michael Goldman. And Michael was someone that I frequently talked to and had quoted as a source when I was a reporter. So we, we had a nice rapport. I mean, I'd call him all the time. And so when I got laid off, he, he knew it. I wasn't calling anymore. And uh, he thought I might be looking for a job. So he reached out to me around that possibility. And because I, I had worked in media and because I had done a little bit of politics before, they thought I was a, a decent enough bet. So they brought me on. Reich lost in the Democratic primary,
1: but you were bitten by politics and began thinking about working on a presidential campaign. And I just love the thing that I really love about your career, Dory, is how sort of undaunted you are and and how willing you are to just throw yourself into the biggest possible challenges rather than work on another Governor or senator or mayoral campaign, you're like, okay, I want to work for somebody who's running for president, and and you did, you got a job working for Howard Dean in his quest to become president in 2004. But at the same time, you also became the executive director of an organization called the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition, and you worked with legislature and state agencies to improve transportation planning. So so talk about these sort of different pathways that you were taking at that time and ultimately what made you decide to stop both
2: and start your own company. So I was full-time on the, the Dean campaign for close to a year. I worked first in Vermont for him and then as the New Hampshire Communications Director around the New Hampshire primary. And it was a really exciting ride. I mean, Dean was someone who went from almost total obscurity and being at two percent in the polls to within a few months, essentially emerging as the front runner in the race and a prohibitive favorite. And then, of course, rather tragically, uh, he finished third in Iowa, second in New Hampshire, and then quietly dribbled out of the race. But we, we got to see the entire ride. But I was all in on that campaign. I thought he would have been a terrific president. But after that ended, I decided it was time for me to go back to Boston, where I had put a lot of roots down. And I thought I would either run communications at a large nonprofit or perhaps uh, head up a smaller nonprofit which is how I ended up getting the job at MassBike, the uh, Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. And uh, it was a really good education for me because when you're running this tiny nonprofit, you sort of have to do everything, you have to be a jack of all trades. And uh, also, it was a nice uh, humbling experience for me, because what I quickly discovered, if you're running a bicycling advocacy organization, I was like a commuter cyclist. I'm like, yes, I support the transportation benefits of bicycles. You know, we need we need fewer cars on the road. The people who were my board, they were like the biggest bicycle zealots you could ever have. Like our board president lived 30 miles outside of Boston and she didn't own a car and she would like bicycle in and out, you know, 60 miles each way for meetings. You know, we would have a board meeting in the morning and then a a group ride in the afternoon. And I was the youngest person. And I was also always like bringing up the rear. It was just really humiliating when our septuagenarian members would be clocking me. But, you know, you you just you dive in and uh, make it happen. What made you decide to... Go for broke, start your own company, Clark
1: Strategic Communications, in 2006 with the title
2: CEO. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think the title is just self-aggrandizement, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, the, the CEO of the one-person company. But what I realized in the course of, of running this nonprofit was it was a three person, tiny, tiny organization. So we were pretty much doing everything. I mean, we were doing, you know, I'd be in charge of marketing and event planning and fundraising and database management and keeping up the website and reconciling the QuickBooks. I mean, literally all the things. And I realized that I had managed to acquire this kind of comprehensive knowledge of how to, how to run a nonprofit. And just, at some certain point, I guess it had never really fully occurred to me before, but I thought, oh, my God, this is the same thing as running a business. This is literally running a business. And then, you know, it took me one or two beats and I was like, wait a minute, I could run my own business. And I, I just had so much stress running this little nonprofit where, you know, the the board was wonderful, but they were not a super fundraising board. I was really responsible for raising all of the money and keeping this organization and our employees solvent and i realized it would actually ironically be you know for for a lot of people you know that i that i coach or that i work with now they, they they might want to work for themselves one day, but they're like, oh, but I'd have to take this salary cut. And, you know, they've got the sort of proverbial golden handcuffs because they're they're so successful now. They're making so much money. I had the opposite problem. I was making 36 grand my first year. Then I was making 45. They gave me the raise. I was actually not happy about the raise because I had to raise my raise. (laughs) (laughs) It was just (laughs) misery. And I thought, you know what? I can for sure figure out somehow how to make that much money and I could get rid of the stress of running this organization. And and so I actually thought, wow, the safe choice for me, the easy <laughs> choice is having my own business. So yeah, I, I that, dove into it. That's a stress-free uh, path to take,
1: running your own business as a way to relax into your life. <laughs> that's right. Now, you focused initially on public relations and consulting as the centerpiece of your business, but very quickly... Uh, shifted to marketing strategy. Tell me how that happened.
2: That was me responding to market conditions, essentially, because at the time that I was doing this, I was starting my business in 2006. In many ways, I would say that was the inflection point of two phenomena – one was that social media was starting to take off. And, you know, YouTube was, was founded right around then. Facebook was just starting to become publicly available outside of college campuses. Twitter was hot. So everybody was very interested in social media. And the second issue was that newspapers, as evinced by my own story, were really starting to go into a freefall. And as a result, their news hole was shrinking, meaning the news hole is literally the amount of print space that they have available. So there would be situations where I was doing PR for clients, and they would do something that, you know, the year before, two years before they had done, they're like, we're going to have a press conference. And they would expect, you know, 10 reporters at their press conference, because hey, we're having a press conference. (laughs) And (laughs) what they didn't really get is that, you know, a quarter of the staff had been laid off, and the newspaper had cut, you know, dozens of pages. And so there was a higher bar in terms of what would constitute something that the papers would cover. So they'd organize an event. I would kill myself trying to pitch the press, get them out, and they wouldn't come to cover the press conference and my clients, not all of them, some of them understood, but some of them thought I was an idiot (laughs) being like, like, Hey, loser. What? You know, Joe, two years ago, got the globe here. Why can't you get the globe? And it's like, it's because everyone's fired. That's why. But I just hated having to always be on the defensive and explaining that to people who were dissatisfied. So (laughs) eventually I thought, okay, I I am going to leave the, the dying industry and go toward what is actually prospering. So I, I stopped pitching myself to do PR and instead uh, switched essentially into marketing strategy, which, in, which involved you know a social media strategy and a kind of more holistic way of, of marketing to take the heat off in many ways, but also because I realized that was going to be the future if organizations were going to actually be able to, to get known in the marketplace. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com.
0: Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites, or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. In
1: 2009, you decided that you wanted to write a book. You made it your New Year's resolution. And in the first six months of the year, you wrote three book proposals, hoping that at least one would resonate with a publisher. And none of them did. Not one of the pitches, the proposals resonated with anyone. And you said you were rejected by publishers because you didn't have a big enough platform. And so once again, you had to pivot. And You had to go back to what you refer to as the proverbial drawing board and create a fan base from nothing. So you started out with zero audience. What gave you the sense that this was worth pursuing? And how did you go about doing this?
2: I had always wanted to write a book. And I knew intellectually that it would also be a good thing for me in terms of my business. And marketing it and making people aware of what I did. But at a fundamental level, it just was kind of a bucket list goal that I had admired authors from the time I was a little kid and wanted to do it. And so even though it was extraordinarily frustrating to have to realize, okay, this is going to take longer than I wanted, this is going to actually literally take years longer than I wanted it to, I just decided, okay, well, that's what it's going to be. And uh, so I, I did start blogging and, and start the, the process that turned out to be necessary in order to get published. In 2011, you wrote an article for the
1: Harvard Business Review titled, How to Invent Your Personal Brand. And the piece went viral. You were approached at that point by several literary agents who finally thought you had a topic for a book. And your first book, Reinventing You, Define Your Brand, Imagine Your Future, was published in 2013 to great fanfare. As I mentioned in the introduction, the New York Times went as far as designating you as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make change in their lives. So congratulations for that, Dory. I think that the The amount of resilience you've shown in sort of facing the unknown or facing rejection is stunning. It really is. And I think it really, you know, a lot of people talk about resilience. A lot of people talk about perseverance. But you walk it. And I think that in a day and age when there's so many guru books and so much out there that will give you a prescriptive path to success – I think you really show tangibly how to make
2: these kinds of things happen. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. It means means a lot coming from you, Debbie, back at you.
1: Oh, thank you. So now I have a little bit of a um, bone to pick, maybe. Just a tiny one. Just a tiny one because Let's do I, it. Bring it. Yeah, yeah. I have I think you know that I have issues with the idea of a person being a brand. And, and as somebody who's worked in branding for so long, I, I believe that brands are sort of manufactured entities that people conjure and create with imagination and innovation. They're not really real in the truest sense of the word real. You know, they don't have a consciousness. They don't breathe air. As much as people would like to think that, they really, truly, scientifically don't. Brands don't have living, beating hearts. They don't bleed. They don't cry. They don't have souls or feel pain and pleasure. So, I'd like to think that people should develop their reputation or their character as opposed to aspiring to be a brand. And I just wanted to get your sort of perspective on that. I'm with you. I'm completely (laughs) with you.
2: I think (laughs) you win. (laughs) I really treat personal brand as – an almost interchangeable term. I am uh, I. I am terminology agnostic, right? As you know, the term personal brand really was was coined and came to popular use uh, by Tom Peters uh, yes. in a famous 1997 Fast Company cover story. I still and have so that, that issue, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. gee. I like it. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the term is 20, 25 years old. But fundamentally, all he's talking about is something that's millennia old, which is, in fact, your reputation. What do people think about you? Is it what you want them to be thinking about you? And if not, is there something you can do about it? Those are really the only three questions that matter. And I don't really care what people call it. I'm happy to use personal brand because it's a commonly used term of art these days. But fundamentally, what I'm interested in is making sure that for people whose talents may have been misunderstood or may have been underestimated, I would like to equip them with a way of fighting back so that they actually can be properly understood and valued and respected the way they should.
1: I fundamentally agree. And that's really so much of what I like about your work. I think there is a big difference between aspiring to be a brand and having a brand. You know, I think it's possible for people to create brands, but to aspire to be a brand, I think actually limits our potential and our possibility, because it doesn't give us this opportunity to pivot or reinvent, which I think is so important. Anyway, you've since written three other books the latest of which is my favorite. It is titled The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, which has already received terrific reviews. So congratulations, Dory. Thank you, Debbie. I appreciate it. You know, one of the things that I love so much about the book is how it reinforces something I've been really thinking a lot about, and and it allowed me to think about it in in brand new ways. For a long time, I've been saying that we're living in a 140 character culture. Um, I changed that when Twitter changed their character count to 280. But but fundamentally, what I mean by that is that we expect things instantly. And I believe, and I think you do too. Now, after reading your book, that people, most people, should expect anything worthwhile to take a long time. And in your new book, you posit that personal goals need a long-term strategy.
2: And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that means. Absolutely. And to your point, uh, it makes me think about the famous quote from uh, Peter Thiel. They promised us flying cars and what we got was 140 characters. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and. I think uh, in, in many ways, what I would like to see is to find a way back to that. It doesn't, of course, literally have to be flying cars. But I like the sentiment that, you know, where, where are the big dreams? Where are the aspirations that are worth fighting for and working toward? One of the, the folks that I, I quote in the book is Jeff Bezos. He had a conversation in 2011 with Wired magazine and even back then when Amazon was you know, literally a fraction of the size that it is now, it was still very successful. And he was talking about the reasons behind their success. And one of the things he said is that most of our competitors are only willing to plan on a three-year time frame. And the planning is really because of budgeting. It's because of uh, they're afraid to take longer-term risks because the longer-term risks, you know, it takes a while to pay off. But he said that Amazon's secret to their success is that they were willing to plan on a seven-year time frame, you know, more than double. And because of that, they were able to pursue more ambitious goals than other people. And therefore, you know, as we now see with things like Amazon Prime, uh, with things like Amazon Web Services, it might take a while to build up and to percolate but it can create a huge competitive advantage. And I think the same thing is true for all of us with our own lives and our own careers. We're often thinking too small, thinking too short term. We often imagine if we're going to create some grand goal, oh, well, you know, I, I don't know how I do that, so I won't go there. But the actually really empowering thing is if you have a long enough term goal You don't have to know how you're going to do it. It would be ridiculous to plan a 10-year strategy because so many things can change between here and there. But it is not at all ridiculous to have a 10-year ambition or vision and to just start taking one step at a time toward it to move in that direction. And that's what I'd love to see more of. One of the
1: centerpieces of your book is the notion of strategic patience can you talk a little bit about what that is
2: and how you might use it so i have never been a fan of patience i even as a it's a one of your kid. two least favorite things i understand from the book <laughs> <laughs> That is that is true. I even even as a kid, I would just get so frustrated. I you know would be watching the news with my parents and hear about elections, and I'd be like, "Well, I want to vote." And you know, my mom's like, "Well, actually, you need to wait another 16 years to vote." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> it was so offensive. Um, so I, I I've never liked patience. But as I have uh, grown up, I have come to realize that. We sort of have to make our peace with it because it is objectively true that many things you have to wait for. And uh, you're either going to suffer and shake your fist at the sky or you have to reconcile yourself somehow. But I've created my own flavor of patience, I guess you could say, because – I still have problems with the way that patience is so often talked about, which I think is a really passive enterprise. A lot of people, honestly, I think just to shut you up, will be like, well, just be patient. You know, just wait. Just, you know, just do your thing, Debbie. Just work hard. It'll all work out. You know, sit back. And I find that to be glib and 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 really unhelpful. I don't want to sit back and wait. Now, I understand I can't control the universe. I can't make it happen faster, even if I want to. But what I have taken up, and I hope might be helpful to others, is what I call strategic patience, because it is simultaneously understanding that things may take a while, but also creating a hypothesis, doing things, taking action, taking note of of what is happening and tracking it so that you can pivot if necessary or keep going if, if things seem to be progressing. And actually just taking a, a, a more muscular approach to the fact that, yes, we have to wait, but no, we don't have to be you know, suckers with, with vision boards wishing and hoping. You
1: write how when you're in the moment, when you're trying for something, it's almost impossible to tell if something isn't working or it isn't working yet.
2: How do you know when to fight or when to fold? That is the ultimate question. And it's plagued so many people. I mean, I I know from People who are my colleagues, people who are my coaching clients, I see this. And even going back in history, um, there's a really interesting researcher named David Galenson at the University of Chicago who has studied artists. Um, He's an economist, and so he studies the lens of economics and art. And he talked about how somebody like Picasso, pretty much from day one, everyone's like, this guy's a genius. And, you know, fantastic. Yay for Picasso. Uh, his work sold for a lot of money. He got tons of positive affirmation. It's easy to be a Picasso in the world. But there are other artists, you know, Cezanne was one example, where it was not like that. And, he had been literally working for decades. He was in his late forties before he pretty much got any acclamation at all. And during those times, it's it's not just other people saying, eh, that's not very good. If you were that person, if you were Cezanne, even though we know from history that, you know, TLDR, he was good, uh, you <laughs> wonder about yourself. And it's it's so uh dispiriting at times. And so ultimately what I've come to realize is I think there are three key components to being able to help make the judgment about whether it's not working or whether it's not working yet. So number one is actually taking the time and a lot a lot of us, a surprising number of us don't do this, but taking the time to scope out in advance what it actually is likely to take to get where you want to go many of us make assumptions. We don't even realize we're making assumptions, but we do about, you know, what to expect or how long it should take. We think, oh, a couple of years. Well, okay. Have you studied it? Have you look? have you talked to, have you researched, have you examined people who have done this thing or something quite similar to it before to see how long it took them? Because if it took this person 10 years you're probably not going to do it in a year. I mean, God bless if you can, but it's probably going to be more like 8 or 9 or 11. So grounding ourselves so we know what to expect, so we don't somehow get discouraged midway through because we didn't realize the scope. That's number one. Number two is having a group of trusted advisors around you who are both supportive of you and knowledgeable about your field so that they can give you detailed guidance In those moments when you can't trust yourself, when you're too emotional, and they can tell you, "Oh, this is really good. Keep going," or "Eh, "Maybe let's move on and let's try something else." And then the third piece is what I call looking for raindrops. And what I mean by this is that so often a problem that a lot of us have as humans is we are looking for the big score, we're looking for the big success. You know, the the thunder and lightning and the downpour, and we say, "Oh, now, now it's happening," but it takes a while before that happens. And so in order to really understand where we are in the process and keep motivated, we need to look for those kind of preliminary raindrops. Because usually the way a storm starts is there's just a few isolated drops coming from the sky, you might not even know, you might say, wait, is that a, is that a raindrop? Did you feel that? But those are the signals, the the small kind of weak signals, maybe More people than usual are starting to friend you on LinkedIn because your name is getting around. Maybe you get a compliment from your boss. Maybe you get invited on a weird random podcast that, you know, a person across the world has started. And you think, ah, it's not a big deal. But it's a big deal if you understand that someone you haven't heard of wants to talk to you. It's those little signs. And that's what can help show you you're moving in the right direction.
1: One of my favorite topics in your book is the section on learning how to say no. You know, when we're trying to make it, we tend to think that we have to say yes, to everything because we might not ever have this opportunity again or, you know, anything is good to get the word out. We're worried about disappointing people. Other things on your list, we're worried about negative judgments. We don't want to have hard conversations. It's easier to avoid them. We like feeling important that we're needed. So there's so many things that really contribute to this sense of no avoidance. First of all, let's talk a little bit about why it is so hard to say no, (laughs) aside from from those obvious things. What is it about the human condition that kind of keeps us saying yes, when we don't even want to?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a terrible conundrum that most of us find ourselves in. And I, I think there's a lot of reasons operating simultaneously. One, we have gotten into, I'll say in air quotes, bad habits, but it's not really a bad habit, which is that early in your career, when you were first starting out, yes, actually is the right answer. It's not like you have this vast queue of people waiting to talk <laughs> to you, right? Like, yes, is actually pretty good, because you don't know who's going to be important. You don't know what's going to be interesting. But the problem, it's a great strategy when you're 22. It's a terrible strategy when you're 32 or 42 or 52. Because You have grown in stature, you have grown in responsibilities, you have grown in connections. And so if you were literally to continue saying yes to everything, because so many more people want things from you, you would never be able to accomplish what you want. So I think partly it's just a failure to understand, oh, I'm in a different place now, I need a different strategy. And the other area, which is sometimes uh, hard to deal with and hard to excavate, is that for many of us, being busy has emotional benefits. And there's some interesting research by Sylvia Bellezza from Columbia Business School and some of her colleagues about the fact that, uh, certainly in the United States and many other Western cultures, being super crazy busy is actually viewed as a mark of status. Yeah, it's a badge. Absolutely. And so people wear that. And if we were to take the steps that we need to actually dispatch some of those responsibilities, it actually calls into question some of our self-worth, which is not incredibly healthy, but is often animating some of our decisions. You have four
1: questions that you pose that people should ask themselves before saying yes to any opportunity. Um, And I'd like to share them. Number one, what is the total commitment required? I think we often forget that, right? Number two, what is the opportunity cost? Number three, what is the physical and emotional cost? And number four, I love this one, would I feel bad in a year if I didn't do this? How did you come up with these four
2: and how do you use them in your own life? So I came up with these questions the hard way (laughs) because I kept making mistakes about my calendar. I kept falling prey to all of these things that we're talking about where I would stuff my schedule. I would overcommit And really, the only question that I was asking myself was, well, can I literally do it? Am I double booked or not? Okay, if my calendar is open, then yes, I can do it. And unless it was a obviously terrible request, I would pretty much say yes. But over time, I realized, oh, no, you know, I, I was making choices about, you know, flying this place and that and whatever. And I would end up sick. I'd have, you know, back aches because I had been on a plane for 17 hours. I was, you know, just running myself ragged and not enjoying any of it. And I realized, oh, this is a problem. I need, I need to come up with a better set of criteria for myself so I can actually enjoy my life. And I, I think most of us feel that way. So how I've applied it in, in my own life, In the long game, I actually tell a story about this heart-rending decision where I got invited to give a speech in the Caribbean by a friend to speak to her conference that she was helping to organize, and I ended up turning it down because I realized it would just would have been too much, too hard. And frankly, once I was peeling it back logically, I realized, oh, wait a minute, what I really want is to see my friend. She lives in Brooklyn. I could do that this week if I actually was organized and wanted to, but... I've tried to get smarter and to get better about controlling our time because when we do that, you know, we have to have white space if we are going to actually be long-term thinkers. It's not that we need an infinite amount of time or, you know, some huge amount of time, but you need a little time and you need a little space. And saying no and creating that white space for yourself is really an essential first ingredient.
1: In The Long Game, you write about something that you learned after reading Francis Fry and Anne Morris's wonderful book, Uncommon Service. And they state, choosing to be bad is your only shot at achieving greatness, and resisting it is a recipe for mediocrity. I loved being reminded of that. You go on to recommend that in order to be great at anything, you must
2: decide what to be bad at. Tell us why you need to decide that. So the essence of strategy at a really fundamental level is making choices. And the problem that a lot of us fall into is we are fine with the idea of, okay, I can be great at some things and not great at others. But when they think not great at others, what's in their head is like, oh, I'll be great at some things and then just average at the rest. That is not how it works. We have limited time, limited bandwidth. And so the truth is, if we're really being honest with ourselves, being great at something, over-indexing in a big way, means that with a world of finite time and energy, you're probably going to be bad at other things. And in refusing to make that choice, everybody gets zeroed out, it gets, everything's average, everything's meh. And so it's hard to face the idea that we would be bad at something, but we've got to let some of it go. I mean, I... I don't cook, like pretty much period. I just don't do it. (laughs) I was going to ask you,
1: what are you bad at, (laughs) Dory?
2: Oh, I'm bad at that. I'm pretty bad at responding to email. I'll do it eventually, but it takes a long time. But I've made my peace with it because when there's things that I want to be great at, I I really try to emphasize that. Dory,
1: my last question for you today is this. You include a great quote by Longfellow in The Long Game. You state... We measure ourselves by what we feel capable of doing, while others measure us based on what we've done. And you go on to write about how this makes sense, but it's awfully frustrating when there's a gap between what we know we can accomplish and what we've done up to that point. And you go on to state that everything takes longer than we want it to. Everything. And I can also underline that in bold italics. Everything. For those of us that are slugging away at something and still have big hopes and dreams that haven't manifested yet,
2: what is one thing people can do to improve their odds? As we're thinking about how to play the long game and how to accomplish our long-term goals, it can feel overwhelming sometimes to look out into the horizon and wonder how we're going to accomplish something, especially if it's a big enough goal that we, we can't see through the fog. We don't know what the steps are. They might even change between here and there. But ultimately, the question for all of us, and I think this is the essence of strategic thinking, is what is one thing that I can do today that will make tomorrow easier? Because if we can consistently make those choices about ways to learn more, ways to connect with people, ways to become just slightly better or more informed and move the ball forward, we don't have to know the answer. We don't have to have it figured out 10 or 20 years or even a year into the future. We need to be directionally correct and to recognize that things might not, in fact, they probably won't work out precisely the way that you're mapping out. But there are a lot of ways to get to your goals. I got turned down by every doctoral program I applied to, but within a few years, I was actually teaching at a university, and I continue now to teach at some of the top business schools in the world because when the door was closed, I climbed in a window, and I think all of us can do that as long as we keep in mind that it's not about tackling the whole problem. It's about taking small, consistent steps and just like a stock portfolio is able to to grow because of compounding, it's like that in the investments that we make in our own lives and our own careers. Dory, thank you for
1: creating such soul-enriching work, and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Dory's latest book is titled The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, and you can see more about all of her many incredible endeavors at doryclark.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.